Hey everybody, welcome to It's the People, an interview series where we explore the inside story of building companies and investment portfolios with high-octane founders, limited partners, and fund managers. We hope these conversations push you to be even better at what you do. This week, my partner Wills Hapworth and I, Randy Brandoff, had the opportunity to interview a fascinating entrepreneur, Brandon Barton, who is the CEO of Byte. Byte is a digital ordering operating system for restaurants, maximizing order size and throughput, especially during peak times. Byte's intelligent recommendations increased check averages by over 20%. We discussed a range of topics, including how learning to manage a funnel as a trained salesperson has been incredibly useful across all activities as a CEO, the white and black hats in the hospitality tech space, a vision for the future where your personal data is applied to achieve a seamless, personalized, and wonderful dining experience, and much, much more. Before we begin, I want to note that this interview is for informational purposes only and that the opinions expressed should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. TIA Ventures is a seed stage fund focused primarily on early stage B2B technology companies with an obsessive focus on end customers and early teams. To start things off, Brandon begins the conversation with his life story in 60 seconds. Enjoy. Would love it if you could paint a picture of your life story in, call it 60 seconds to two minutes. Just take us back to the beginning and, and how you got to where you are right now. Great. Uh, yeah, so um, I uh, started from from humble beginnings and um, grew up in Brooklyn in a very, you know, uh, blue collar family. Um, my my dad was a cop. My mom was a nurse. I worked in restaurants to kind of make money so I could hang out with my friends on the weekends. And um, I completely ignored that when choosing college. I went to Cornell as an engineer uh, and then quickly realized that you could actually have a career in um, in, in hospitality, uh, given that they have such an amazing hospitality school transferred over there and started to make, it started to make sense to me why I loved working in restaurants so much when I was in high school. Um, fast forward, uh, after that I had worked, um, in a couple of restaurant groups, including working for Danny Meyer in New York. And, um, at that point realized that my, uh, you know, I was capped in terms of the upside of, of, of my career by working in restaurants and, um, kind of difficult path there. So I, I looked to tech and I said, there's this incredible, you know, uh, you know, incredible moment for restaurant technology happening. Uh, and this is back in 2007. Um, I, and I wanted to jump in. So I worked for a company called Avero. This is where maybe my engineering side and hospitality side got to meld together. Uh, worked for a company for called Avero, which really did analytics for restaurants, um, learned everything about SaaS there. And then, uh, took the first um, uh, non-engineering position at Resi as the head of sales and operations, grew Resi for, uh, for the next three and a half years, uh, later was successfully uh, acquired by Amex. And uh, then of course, uh, met the team at Byte and uh, knew that this was the next big thing, um, digital ordering across every single channel that's possible. So uh, jumped in here as CEO. Fantastic. Now, let me ask you as a fellow Cornellian, and we all know the reputation of Cornell's hospitality school, how applicable has that education been? And do you find yourself relying on anything in particular as you've gone from restaurants now into restaurant tech? I mean, what's interesting is that um, I would probably say from from like a different, you know, college and university standpoint, um, the, the School of Hotel Administration teaches incredibly practical things. Um, there are parts of it that are not practical. I can remember doing a, uh, you know, you do a day where you work with a housekeeper. Um, now, you know, uh, I guess I make my bed every day and I, I know how to do hospital corners. So maybe in that sense, practical, but, um, you know, ne never really had to do that again as I didn't go into the world of hotels. Um, but I, I remember having... Um, having knowledge about um, things like inventory management or even just in general, how to use Excel. I mean, as wild as that sounds, there was an incredible um, you know, few classes that every hotel student had to take about how to manipulate and use Excel, do VLOOKUPs in a time when nobody knew how to do that. And, we were, and so we were coming out of college in this very interesting spot. Like I 
uh, our my generation is probably called Zennials, where you know we grew up with technology only from like college on. So we entered the workforce as the first people understanding how to use computers when the rest of people did uh, that were older than us for the most part. So using Excel was this incredible advantage of being able to do inventory and do VLOOKUPs, right? Um, so I would actually say that quite a bit of my education was incredibly useful. Um, of course, got to point out that mixing into that it was wine class and food and wine pairing and all these things that are fluff in college, but um, I still use today. And if we stick on uh, kind of the education and, and where you spent your time up until now, you had the benefit of going to a school where you kind of were trained in liberal arts. And I think that teaches you to look at things from first principles, try to just break things down and understand the kind of fundamental nature of them. And, and if you were to look at your fundamental nature, like why is it, you said you worked in restaurants, you stuck around in kind of restaurant and hospitality and technology for that industry. Like if you were to break into component parts, why this industry attracts you so much? Like what is it about, again, restaurant, however you define it, but you've been hovering around this space for most of your career. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, if, if I had a, a the thread in my career, which will probably continue, it is I I want to help um, push forward uh, the restaurant industry in general. That started in operations, and and my love for operations comes from helping others. I get an incredible sense of of um, of pleasure and happiness from other people being happy, and so that could mean running around in a uh, dining room, making sure that. Um, you know, people who are spending their good hard-earned hard -earned money on a tasting menu are having the exact pairings and the perfect timing and, and the food is spectacular um, as I, you know, as I did in fine dining or, or even teaching people at Resi, uh, teaching people that they didn't need to pay this exorbitant price for open table, um, you know, and, and they had an alternative to go and, and, and pay less for that, which means they could run their operations better, which would then serve people better. Um, and even today, our uh, our mission at Byte is to elevate hospitality everywhere. Um, and so um, that is a couple of orders away from us because we're interacting with other businesses. But the idea for us is that we want to create beautiful digital hospitality experiences that delight people. Um, you know, uh, th this is uh, this is the thread: is how do we make the world of food and beverage just continue to be incredible, even as we are pushing the limits of technology and 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 guest interaction into the digital sphere. Might even say to the metaverse at some point. Who knows about that? But um, you know, for me, it's always been about making sure that guests have an incredible time. Uh, you know, when they choose to dine out. And if I could just continue on this one thought, do you find that that kind of you talked about this thread through your career? enjoying helping others does that translate to what you know how you lead a company and, and how you think about you know people in the organization and what are the pros and cons of that like always wanting to make people happy yeah for sure and and, and um you know it's interesting to to land on the always want to make people happy i want to always want to make people their best right um so when it comes to you know i had i had the benefit of working for danny meyer who has a incredible philosophy around um, taking care of their own employees, the, the employees that you have. Um, and so I learned in an early stage of management how to um, how to get the best of people, but also um, to be empathetic in doing so. So we had concepts like constant gentle pressure. Um, you know, uh, just because, uh, you know, uh, somebody is, is doing something okay, doesn't mean that they can't get better at that. How do you do that in a way that also means that they're, you're on their side? I mean, I think the, the modern way to think about this or not modern, but a more modern, uh, framework for this is, um, you know, uh, the, um, radical candor, uh, framework, right. Um, where you can both, uh, be empathetic towards somebody, but yet be telling them the truth. That's going to elevate the way that they can do something. Um, and so, but I, I would say that um, the hospitality side has certainly allowed me to, and we didn't even use this phrase, but to be a servant leader. Um, 
I want to get in the weeds with my team. I want to say hello to everybody. Uh, we used to walk through the kitchen. I'd say hello to everybody. The guy who's peeling the potatoes up until the person who's washing the dishes to the head of the, the kitchen. Um, you know, that's what you do in the morning when you first walk in, you say hello to everyone. And it, there's, there's, uh, in a remote culture that doesn't exactly happen. You don't walk around the room, but I think that still exists today. I want to check in with everybody on the team. I had the fortunate, um, uh, chance last week to do some traveling with one of our SDRs. Um, and yeah, I wanted to take him out and have him have dinner and sit down with him and hear about what's going on in his life, not just in, in work, but just life in general. Um, and I think that's all part of being a servant leader, being uh, understanding, um, you know, what people want out of their career. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this, just in general, um, I uh, there are so many things that people had taught me along the way and mentored me along the way to teach me how to, I don't know, uh, how to lead, how to be, uh, how to fundraise, how to close deals, how to close enterprise deals, all this other stuff. And um, I want to give that back. So I'm constantly talking to our team about um, about how uh, they will one day be fundraising and run, run running their own company, whether it's on the technology side or, or on the product side or on the customer success side. And I'm an open door to them. Um, I've, and I've had people reach out to say, um, you know, I would, my, even a friend of mine is going through a fundraise and wanted some advice. Would you sit down with them? And I will, absolutely. I will take that phone call. And, and if it helps you and maybe you learn something or maybe just your friend learned something, that's great. Um, so, so that's a, a little bit of, um, of, of our philosophy, but, uh, uh, at the end of the day, we're always looking for excellence. How much, cause I hear the notion of servant leader, you know, there's the, you know, you're, you're a pleaser, you're a sales guy, you know how to ask for the order, you know how to please, how difficult is it to transition to being the CEO when those are your traits? Because I, I, I understand those traits. I, I have them too. Is it hard to, for the times where you need to be more stern and for the times where, you know, if things aren't going well and you need to steer the ship in a different direction and, and you know, the, the hard talks as well as the easier talks, has that been hard? And, and I guess to that end, you know, what if, what is you like, what are you most proud of that uh, you've done as CEO and as a leader to this point at Byte? Interesting. Um, let me take the first one. So, you know, I think it's about s switching the context on what what is your goal for that person that's in front of you or that, that organization or so forth. So let's say there are hard decisions and we've had to make them. We've had to go through layoffs during during COVID and, and choose which people are staying with us and which people are leaving and so forth. Um, though that is a hard decision when you bring in people and you care about them, but at the, at, you know, when, when you frame it as what is it for that singular person? Um, it's very hard to think about. And, and perhaps there's a way to handle that, um, that, uh, you know, um, can, can make the most sense in terms of me, maybe assisting and finding other things for that person or those people or whatever. But, when you look at the, the the larger picture and say, my job is to um, is to make sure that this organization survives and this organization thrives. Um, in that sense, the team and this is where you know I didn't mention I I had um, I played basketball my entire life and I got a wonderful opportunity to play at Cornell. So I have a um, also have that layer of understanding uh, you know team over individual. Um, and, uh, certainly apply that whenever I'm thinking about, um, any of the hard decisions that need to be made. Um, you know, my job is to keep our company thriving. Uh, and it's not about, uh, looking at the individual success of one singular person. This is a team. And so, um, that framework allows me to disassociate for some of the hard stuff, uh, while still being empathetic, uh, but disassociate kind of the negative, you know, vibes that, that come from that. Um, and, and look, um, you know, you asked, uh, w what's the. What's the best thing? Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll do some, I'll say something kind of cheesy, uh, if you don't mind. Um, my, you know, we have a, a bunch of our team is up in Toronto and, um, we, uh, Toronto, you know, was, was one of the cities that was really hard hit by COVID and they were shut down and like cold up there. So people want to be indoors anyway. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, kind of pent up, um, energy there, we got an opportunity just, uh, once they opened up the border to go up and, and sit with the team. And I looked over to, you know, my CTO Stas, and we had 20 people sitting there all having a great time having beers. And I said, you know, this is, 
I, I forgot for a moment why we do this. Like we're doing this. Sure, it'd be great to make investors money and make money and whatever. But like there's 20 people here who are uh, learning about themselves, learning about their career and just like they're at the early days of their career. And and it's incredible to sit around them and, and see the energy from just the interaction that they have. And like some of them will go on to be their own CEOs, CTOs and whatever. And so the best thing in my mind that I've done it done is put this team together. Um, we have an incredible group of people and uh, I'm super passionate about hiring in general. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of the people that we've brought in because uh, because they're all, you know, everyone says this are all A players like we we have some really killer A players and, and I'm hoping uh, just we continue along that and that'll make us successful. So, Brandon, if, if you take a quick glance at your LinkedIn, you see a lot of sales type roles and now you're a CEO. What from your sales background has been, you know, the most immediately relevant, useful skill and what have, what, what have you had to learn or what, and maybe still learning that didn't, you know, that you didn't pick up as, you know, somebody who's heavily, you know, spend most of their career in sales? Yeah, that's a great question. So from funny, I was actually thinking about this over the weekend, um, just randomly. And I thought about how um, learning how to manage a funnel, right? How to manage a set of tasks and activities that lead people from point A to point Z, um, which is essentially what sales is, is they're going from not knowing who your brand is to knowing who they are, to wanting to meet you, to then wanting to meet them, take a demo, then then wanting to maybe tell their their other you know colleagues about it. I mean, it's just bringing people down a path, and uh, understanding how to do that um, uh, applies to everything. Frankly, um, it applies to you know when we go into you know periods of wanting to hire a bunch of people, hiring candidates, right? It's just a funnel. Who's taking a first interview? Did they qualify? Second interview? Who they? What's the next step that they have to do? Right? Um, you know, same thing for you know, in some sense, product. Um, I know it's not um, cool to think about like waterfall product management. You're right. You, we want to be in this uh, you know cyclical nature, but conceptually, for me as a salesperson, understanding that like point A, point B, point C. Okay, reverse back point A, point like this. This is a a really easy framework to try to run anything. Um, which actually gets me to the thing that I've had to learn, um, which is, is fundraising, um, in sales. So you could run fundraising with this process, which is great. And, and I'm doing that, you know, uh, you know, constantly you're always fundraising as they say, but, um, with sales, uh, a great salesperson is going to have an over 50% win rate and a great person who fundraises probably has a 10% win rate and hearing no, that gap of hearing no 40% more times. It's not what salespeople love. Salespeople love the momentum of yes and and so forth. And it takes um, it takes a little bit of uh, you know a little bit extra to be able to get up every time somebody says no, I'm not interested. And they could be not interested for any. And by the way, like who knows why they're not interested? They, whatever they say in the email of why not may or may not be it. Who knows? But the point is 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 that unless you're in a really special scenario where where everyone wants to to jump in on your round. Most of the time, you're going to get a lot of no's, and and that's hard to hear as a salesperson because you're like, well, what did I do wrong? And it and it's not that in this case. It's like uh, it, it's it's just one of these things where the batting average is super low. It's like hitting a you know hitting a hole in one. It's going to happen a lot, and, and yet it does. And you got to figure that out. So um, that would be the the place that I've uh, needed to learn the most about, and just all of the activity around raising around, whether that's reading the contracts and the cap table and all this other stuff. That's interesting. I, I, I guess I would have thought, and I hadn't, th you know, totally considered the way you framed it, particularly around win loss ratios. But the win ratios for salespeople are, even though you hear a decent amount of no's, they're still substantially higher than what you hear is, you know, when you're fundraising. I, I guess I just would have naturally thought that great salespeople would kind of understand and take understand, you know, what goes into fundraising but i think it makes a lot of sense when you when you explain it like that i think it, i think it's about understanding the structure and like how to move people from point a to point b but the problem is is with vcs especially in in my opinion i don't know if this rings rings true 
what what is good for one is is not what's good for the other. So mm -hmm. you, yeah. are lear you are learning, right? You are learning kind of maybe like some of the the objections, as I would say in the sales process. Like, what are the questions you get? Okay, you got to nail those questions for the next one, sure. But one person may want you to be all like stylish and 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 uh, and, and and you know. Uh, very outgoing. Another may want you to be reserved. I heard one piece of advice that I heard that really made sense to me um, uh, from a friend of mine, Paul Hurley. Um, he said, if you sell in these meetings, you're done. Don't sell. Sure. He said, act like you're a consultant at McKinsey and you've evaluated this business. And this is just the, the results of the evaluation that you have. Um, because the minute you start selling, because most VCs are not salespeople. So the minute yep. you start selling, the natural movement is like, oh, he's trying to say a story that's bigger than what is here. Um, and I've tried to, I've tried to, uh, to, to, to practice a little bit more reserved, um, which is like a quiet confidence, uh, you know, of a, of like a, um, you know, of, of let's say a, 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 a managing management consultant or something like that, rather than a, you know, boisterous salesperson coming in here, you know, pants on fire, let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, so it's interesting. I don't know if any of that's relevant to people. No, it's interesting. I, you know, the other thing you just said, we think about this a lot when we diligence and customers, we focus largely on B2B because the needs of those B2B buyers are far more homogeneous than, you know, end consumers where you'd have to sample much larger groups and segment by age, gender, socioeconomic, et cetera. The, the idea of VCs as acting more like consumers than B2B buyers is is interesting. I have to think about that one. But yeah, that's, uh, oh, yeah, yeah all, it's not like I'm a restaurant operator in New York who has the same problems as, you know, the one who's in Minnesota, the one who's in LA, it's the one who's in, you know, Kentucky. Yeah, at least at least it's about the, the variance is at least as much as B2B buyers across different industries, right? Yeah. Um, like it's at least that. And it might be as variant as B2C, you know, buyers or, or consumer consumer behavior, which could vary from region to region, right? You know. So let me ask you this. It because selling VCs is raising money to, you know, from vent from VCs is definitely a sales task. It's just you're selling against people who are sold a thousand times a year, who are very jaded, very difficult, and generally have strong opinions. And then everyone has their own niche. So it's it's different from just going out and selling consumers where there's so many of them or or even B2B sales. But you know, there it you know, it's commonly asked or referred to that you should pick the ideal investors you want and start there. From your perspective, is that too difficult? Is the hit rate too small and you have to cast a wider net, or if you really are doing a good job in creating that finite list, you will be able to find matches and, and, and get where you want to start and focusing on a narrow search versus a broader one. Look, I mean, um, I'm still in earth, like for me to give advice on, on pitching VCs is a little bit like when I was in, you know, grammar school, giving advice to people to play hoops, right? Like I, I could I could tell you right now how to run a motion offense like like it's the back of my hand. I could get me, you, Wills, and Andy to run a motion offense easily. Okay, um, I'm not ready to give advice on how to pitch or or what the great process is for fundraising. Maybe in a few, maybe in a few years. I mean, I think what you're saying is true. Is is it is about um, you know there's a dating parallel, of course. It's like finding people who may or may not have similar interests or compatible interests at the very least than you. Um, and, and going and finding them and then, and then it's the courtship and getting in front of them. And you can't just walk up to somebody and say, Hey, you want to go on a date? Or maybe for some people that's what works and others, it doesn't, um, you know, it's, it's about snipping all that out. And I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, um, it's a, it's, it's a process. There's a sales motion to it, but it is not. The same way that I'm selling people today on my product and it, at, at Byte is the same framework that I sold people when I was at Avero. This is 15 years ago, okay? Um, if you were pitching people the same way 15 years ago in VC, um, it wouldn't work, right? So it just evolves a little quicker than that. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, it is about just finding that that perfect, uh, you know, Cinderella slipper, if you will, and, and <laughs> find the person who has it and it slips on your foot and then you, uh, you know, then it's off to the races. 
I, I find this really interesting, this one concept, because I'm I'm starting to think about companies and you know, you put bite into a quick serve restaurant and pretty quickly they're starting to feel the benefit. Whereas the time to benefit for, you know, seed stage funds is substantially longer. I mean, there's checkpoints along the way, but the the real you're not like feeling the benefit of the service in the first month, right? So or how about this? Hard. How about yeah. this? My, if I to, if I told you guys back way back when I was going to sell into an industry where there was all of these egos, these people are rich, don't really need money, but I have a thing that solves some of their problems, and there's all different <laughs> types of buyers. If I described selling to VC, you would be like, "This is crazy. This is not. A, I want to go to some <laughs> one industry where everybody has the same exact problems. The buying process is the same, right?" So. Uh, but yet, you know, businesses, so many businesses obviously rely on on this concept of selling into VC. It's not that hard. It's just, um, you know, it is. Uh, I I had a, a, another um, investor in Byte who who shared with me um, this person is connected as they can be in in the world of VC, and he shared with me. He said, "It's just a grind. Doesn't matter how connected you are, how what it is, just a grind to do it, and you got to go and just." Every day, grind the stone and get your list and get the top 10 and get the next 10 and get them in and out and see who wants to, to meet with you and see who's, who's you know, got money to, 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 to invest, who does it, who's leading now, who's now dropped out of leading and moved from A to Bs. I mean, it's just a grind. You just got to go through it. Staying on the VC topic before we, before we get on to, you know, a few other areas that we want to hit, there, you know, there's the notion of advice whiplash that you often hear from folks who have more than one VCs in their ear. Have you, you know, I, I and I, I think Wills and I <laughs> come from it, you know, admittedly biased that, you know, we're just talking, we're, we're not forcing the conversation. We're talking about things we know to be important between primarily between seed and series A. And if you're not hearing it from us, you know, if you don't want to talk about it with us, you got to talk about it with someone. But you have plenty of VCs that I'm sure you've spoken to and have dealt with that give you perspectives on every area of your business. How have you learned when to lean in more than others, when to filter? How do you approach hearing this professional and informed, but maybe sometimes too much, too much advice, you know, too many thoughts in your head and you, and you can't shoot the shot? Yeah, look, I mean, this is, this is maybe, um, you know, this is part of the skill set um, that uh, a CEO needs to build up. You need to figure out how to ask for advice and then what to do with that advice, right? Like, um, and I, I've been fortunate to do this because I don't know shit, right? I, I come at my my life uh, with this idea that there are experts out there who know more than me about whatever subject it is, and let me go learn from them. And so this has done me really well, uh, d done really well for me in basketball, for example. Like I have always come at it with, I've never been a great shooter. So I've never been an incredible offensive player. And so the way for me to stand out has been, I need to know the play better than everybody. I need to be in the right position. I, I'm certainly not the most athletic guy on any court I've ever been on. So like there's this concept of just, uh, you know, um, taking the best advice possible from people and using it. Okay, so now take this into the world of, let's say, VC or just advisors and this and that. I want to hear, I need to know you and your perspective. This is where empathy comes in uh, as much as possible so that when you give me a piece of advice, I will come at it with this understanding of that's coming from this place. And now how can I use that to, to, um, to, how can I soak the most out of that advice for what I what I need? Um, you know, so if, if there's a really consumer focused uh, you know person who's giving me advice and they're saying like visually your deck needs to be this or like maybe you should be leaning into like you know a B to C angle here, um, that would make sense. And so I'll take that and filter it through this. Um, you get enough advice from enough people, you're going to be completely lost. Um, and and but yet some things will stick out like. Uh, one thing that always sticks out with with um, the advice that the folks uh, you folks at TIA give me is always about, let's say, story. Um, I, I never brought you guys anything that you said that's super clear, <laughs> uh, which is which is fine. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not nece necessarily sure I'm you know the greatest storyteller in the world uh, yet. 
so that's fine. And and it says, so if I'm taking that advice and looking at it, uh, getting back into the lab, as they say, and like looking at my deck or materials or sales materials, I'm saying, okay, how do I improve this story? And maybe there's a tweak or two. Am I going to ever make it perfect for you? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm settled on the idea that no, I never will. Because I promise you, even when I am a wonderful, perfect storyteller and I bring you guys a deck, you'd be like, yeah, the story could be better. So, <laughs> you know, and I'm okay with that, right? Um, I'm okay with this idea that, um, you know, perfect is the enemy of, of great, right? Um, and um, and at sometimes you got to get stuff done and get it out. And you take as much advice as possible. You apply it in the way that you want to, because at the end of the day, I want to feel good about what I did and have no regrets about that, not make somebody else's um, story happen or their advice happen when meanwhile, it doesn't seem right to me or, or natural to me. Right. Yep. Yeah. Brandon, I, I'm still thinking about this idea of if a startup came to us and said, let me tell you about my business, which is pitching VCs, right? We'd say no way. Um, and I think this is a good segue into talking more about bite. Uh, sure. You're not pitching, you know, your business is not pitching VCs, which we would probably not invest in that kind of a company. However, you've gone into a space that, you know, I think historically has been slower than other industries to adopt technology. Um, what have been, you know, the, the key challenges and how are you overcoming an industry that, you know, the, I think a lot of your customers at the end of the day got into the business to make great food, right? Um, and yet now they have to figure out what to do in the face of technology that is kind of like, you know, forcing them to adopt things. Uh, and yet they're still probably hesitant to do it. So like, how are you navigating that? What have been the challenges? You know, any secrets that you've uncovered as far as you know, trying to make those challenges for them look a bit less daunting or, or a bit more, a bit less intimidating. Yeah. Look, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely a glutton for punishment in this way. Um, if I did not have the love for the restaurant industry, I doubt I would be involved in restaurants, SaaS tech, right? Like, um, as you said, it is challenging to get, I, I, I have a saying, which is the hardest thing in the world to do is to put a dollar into a restaurateur's pocket. Um, this is, a, this is a set of people and not exactly today where I'm selling at the enterprise where it's a corporate business and, and there's a lot of MBAs that are there and so forth. But in general, the long tail of people who own restaurants is a set of people that didn't get into it to become rich. They got into it to become rich with life and, 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 and you know, happiness. Okay. Um, so they weren't looking to make every dollar that they can. And when you come with a proposition on how they might improve their business, it takes both an emotional and a financial side to get there. Um, I think uh, for anybody listening that's that's um, dealing with this in, in any industry, frankly, first of all, get people from the industry on your team. Even today, I mean, I've, I've been out of restaurant operations for long enough that um, I really appreciate the people bringing on people onto our team who have been in restaurants more recently, okay, who understand some of the struggles of having so many different technology providers and so forth. But you have you have to get people on your team that are going to tell you the truth when it comes to how the the pulse of the industry, how the industry is feeling. Um, you know, secondly, I would say um, you you have to come at it from their perspective. This is again, this empathy stuff. But like, let me just give a real example. Um, is this easy to do, right? Is this easy to implement? And I'm not saying, will it take time? That's very different than, Will this mess up what I currently have? Um, restaurants are put together like like uh, like Jenga towers, right? You pull the wrong block, the whole thing is coming down. Um, and so, you know, I I I think we had a sixty step process at Tabla from start to finish. If you were thinking of it like an assembly line, um, you know, we had sixty different touch points for a person, whether that's getting them coffee or getting them tea or asking them if they want more water or this or that and the other. Um, and if you go in and try to disrupt that, um, you're really you're really messing around with it. You're taking a real risk on the Jenga cube, okay? Um, and so uh, I think you you have to meet people where they are and understand what those problems are and be able to solve them in a way that is not going to be disruptive to them. 
but I get a kick. I get an incredible um, jolt of energy by finding people who are not not exactly the technology adopters who eventually come onto your side and, and start loving it. I love that. That is um, that to me, it's just like convincing somebody of a sale for a product. It's just like giving advice to a friend and and they eventually take it and they're successful because, because of it. And we're having the hard conversation with an employee about where they, their level of performance needs to be. And then they step up and do it. Um, or the underdog on a basketball team, like all of this stuff. Um, it's the same story, right? Um, and, and, and I get uh, incredible pleasure from watching somebody go through the evolution of something that I may have already done and, and said, okay, well, it's already inevitable that we're going to be doing digital ordering in restaurants. So it's already inevitable that, um, you know, the drive-through is going to take over or dominate, right? Uh, so I, I get, I get joy in that. Um, and, and I hope, I hope that we are, uh, as a company gentle in, in kind of, um, pulling people towards, you know, not our goals, but the industry's goals of adopting technology. Um, and if we do it the right way, we'll get uh, more people following us and on our side than, than, um, you know, than people saying, Hey, you know, they're going off a cliff. You're saying Brandon, that it's already inevitable. Do you think you may have seen it, but do you think the majority of people thought it was inevitable pre COVID? Or do you think to some extent as horrible as COVID was period and as difficult a challenge it was for hospitality, do you think from the standpoint of technology implementation and what the future looks like, it actually accelerated the curve? Uh, I mean, COVID definitely accelerated the curve of technology adoption in restaurants. There's no question about this. And, um, and it did so both on the consumer side people who were willing to utilize technology to interact with the brand as much as it did on the in the minds of the restaurateurs about um, the minute they had to shut their doors in March or maybe even April of 2020, everyone said, oh shit, what am I going to do? Uh, we, we only can interact with people digitally, right? Um, and so it opened people's minds to opportunities that they never saw before. We're never going to go back to the industry that it was where uh, you know, you e even your local restaurants that maybe do kind of semi-fine dining are probably doing delivery now. Then um, they weren't in the past. They're not shutting that off because a consumer is kind of demanding that at this point that they have the option to do, uh, you know, both a curbside pickup or it's a, you know, just straight up delivery or actually come into your restaurant and go eat. Um, so I think it's accelerated and um, I think it's an incredibly good thing for our, our industry. Uh, I will say to your point of being obvious, to me, those some of these things were obvious prior to the the pandemic because all you had to do was go look at other industries. If you look at retail, right? Um, just ask yourself how much more have I purchased on Amazon, um, you know, today than five years ago. Um, look at like the way that I like to shop for clothes now, right? Um, uh, if you look at shop for sneakers, right? This is another thing like Zappos and obviously it's Amazon too. But like the point is, is that in other commodity-based industries where it's like, you know, these, 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 um, uh, the, these items, the inventory doesn't go bad and it, it, you don't need to be close or anything. You started to see, to see obviously this huge increase in digital ordering. Um, and the same thing applies when it comes to restaurants. As soon as we had this breaking point um, where consumers wanted in both restaurants, uh, understand why it's a, a better, uh, you know, it's better to have more open channels for profitability. So but related to this topic, you know, where technology meets restaurants, I, I'm trying to kind of reconcile what feels like a huge disconnect in that some of the most successful recent technology logos in the space, I'd argue have marginalized the restaurants to the point where, you know, they don't know who their customers are. They, you know, they're starting to not even know who's producing their food. Um, and yet we're talking about one of the basic human needs, right? Food, shelter, water. And can you help unpack, like, why is that? And do you see it getting worse? Or do you think that the pendulum swings back to kind of respecting and, and I guess putting an emphasis on, on the people that are actually making the stuff? 
because you, you know, and if I could just tie into this, you talked about bringing people from the industry onto the team who offered their own insider perspective. But you know, you might, you could probably look at again some of those successful technology logos in the space, and they probably didn't have those people. If they if they had, they probably would not have, you know, pursued the course that they did. Help help me unpack what feels like, yeah, food, shelter, water, and yet the people making the food, you know, have been, you know totally marginalized in many ways by technology. Yeah. Well, I would, it's interesting. Um, There's definitely a white hat part of the industry and a black hat part of this industry. Okay. Um, It's an incredible gift to understand where technology trends are going so that you can then predict and apply those trends and those, those products per se to industries. Okay. That is a gift. And what you do with that gift, um, do you choose to use that gift to exploit the, the, the profitability of restaurants or do you choose to use that gift to offer something that's fair and, um, and, and, you know, and all boats rise with the tide scenario. I mean, you know, I, I called out open table earlier. They're, they're, an, uh, an, uh, you know, an early enemy of mine in my, in, in, in my career because of, um, uh, you know, because of my time at Resi, um, you know, there was a point at which open table, um, was a savior for restaurants. Uh, let's get people, let's get people online so that you don't have to, let's say, sit there and man phones. You can allow people to book your restaurant after 10 PM when your phone lines down and before noon when it opens, that was a moment where they were a savior. Now at some point, you know, the, uh, EBITDA started screaming and saying, we need to make more money because of X, Y, and Z, right? I don't know whatever reasons, but, um, and so they decided every single guest that comes in is going to be, we're going to charge you $1, regardless of how that guest is sourced and this and that. And so there was a point in which that became predatory onto restaurants, um, j- just for this, this example. And so I think that many of the logos that you're probably talking about had started from humbler beginnings and saying, let me, let me get, um, fast, uh, you know, fast delivery or even like 15 minute pickup of this, that, and the other. I mean, I'm sure we're talking about some of these companies. Um, and at some point, um, you know, capitalism takes over and, and, you know, uh, the bottom line becomes the only thing that matters. And it's incredibly hard for brands to, to maintain, um, you know, let's say, uh, to be industry first. I don't think I'm not saying anyone's a nonprofit. Okay. Bite's going to be a profitable company, you know, we, we want to be able to make money. We want to do it in a, in a responsible way that is giving people value for what they do. Um, and, and so, you know, um, I think there are many companies, including some of the logos that we're probably mentioning that will start to turn on this, as, as you've said, um, uh, where uh, being restaurant first is the transparency that the internet provides us is, is wonderful, right? Um, and so the more people are educated uh, on technology, um, on the best practices of X, Y, and Z. You can, a New York restaurant can look at the best practices of some tech nerd in San Francisco who opened up restaurants and say, oh man, they're doing something that is now getting customers to recognize them instead of recognize some big brand. Um, all, all of these things, uh, you know, will help restaurateurs to understand how to, um, how to, figure out who's manipulating them and how to figure out who's trying to help them, who actually has a handout to help them. And now look, when it comes in the trickle down of that to, to the people that are really executing on this, um, you know, on a, on an hourly wage basis, I mean, there's the, I, it's hardly my place to say what needs to happen from, you know, a minimum wage standpoint or, but I, I generally am looking at the industry and saying, um, there's a lot more people talking up about increasing wage. There's a lot more people talking up about giving people benefits. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot more people about the, you know, that are talking about having, um, working in restaurants as, as an actual professional industry, instead of it being a job that you do because you didn't get some other job. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. So let me ask you this, you know, we all have young children, single digits in age. When they're in college and into their 20s and going out with friends on dates, you name it, what is your vision for their restaurant experience as differs from the restaurant experience we had? You know, two or three things that'll just be to them entirely normal, but to us fundamentally different. Yeah, I might even boil it just to one. I hope that before they walk in the door, 
the restaurant knows all the things that they want the restaurant to know about them, okay? Or that experience. So I want the restaurant to know what their dietary restrictions are. I want the restaurant to know maybe even like what their preferences are, if they felt like sharing it. I want the restaurant to know that this is a group of friends hanging out, a business dinner, a birthday celebration. I want people to feel comfortable to share information with the restaurant that's going to allow a restaurant to provide them with a better guest experience. Does it have to go down to Janet likes pickles and, and Sally doesn't like mustard? No. Okay. But um, if somebody, if in this group, there's somebody who's a vegetarian, I mean, we, we all know, for example, diets have changed in a way that may, there are many more categories of diet than there was when we were growing up, when there's probably people who were vegetarian and non-vegetarian. And, and now there's keto, paleo, South Beach, uh, you know, I'm eating this this week, I'm doing this cleanse or this whatever. So, so this is all about your preferences in terms of what you want to put into your body, which is incredibly important. And so how do I let a restaurant know that? So that they can then best serve me when, when I come in. It's, I hope that we're in this world where the, the um, exchange of information is more fluid so that people can have a better experience. And, and I hope that we go turn around on the idea of like keeping this phone, you know, this uh, a phone out during your meal. Um, you know, today they're, it's wonderful to take Instagram pictures and this and that and, and so forth. But I, I hope it turns back into maybe the last place that you want to keep, uh, you know, keep your technology away so that you can kind of interact with the people that you're with. You got me thinking about, you know, I have certain preferences and in, in what I eat, I do care deeply about what I put in my body. And I feel as though when I go out to eat, I I don't want to be that person who's just saying, you know, no oil, this kind of whatever, right? Like, I just don't want to be the focus of the attention. And oftentimes, and I think this is exacerbated from COVID because we've been cooking at home and thinking more about what we put in our bodies. The, the few times I've been out to eat recently, I feel like I'm just taking one for the team and just kind of like turning a you know, blind eye to whatever winds up on my plate and eating it. Whereas, you know, the, the future that you just described where I walk in and it's not like a thing to say, Hey, I do or don't want this in my food. And it just comes out in the way that, you know, aligns with what my goals are. And it's not like a discussion between me and the waiter or the computer or whatever it is that actually is very compelling because I often now feel like I'm going out and just kind of sacrificing, right? You know, taking one for the team because I want to go out and have an experience, and the last thing I want to do is soak up the energy and attention around my weird idiosyncratic food preferences. But everybody has weird and idiosyncratic food preferences. Yeah, and and you and and but this is important because the the pushback here is well, consumers will never sh like share this. It sounds to me like you would happily share this information. If a yep. restaurant would take it and apply it correctly. Um, I just think the, the greatest hospitality experience that I've probably ever had was on my honeymoon and got the fortunate the chance to stay in a Four Seasons hotel. Okay. Um, the gardener, as we walked by them, said, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Barton. I mean, like, this is insane. How did they know it's me? Is there, are there, is there literally somebody sitting there studying a picture of me, you know, and, and, and you, you have an experience like that and you can see what the top level of care for somebody else feels like. And technology is just allowing us to bring that to scale, okay? Um, it doesn't exist today. Maybe it's part of Byte's future, right, to, to, it, to enable this, but um, there is one day that your local restaurant can act like the Four Seasons and say, hey, Wills, happily made this you know, vegetarian for you. Um, enjoy it. Simple as that. So who else, what other technology companies in the hospitality space are getting it right in addition to Byte? Oh, gosh, name, name, name and names. Um, look, there, there, are, there are definitely a, a few that I'd, I'd point out. I think, um, you know, where, where um, earlier in my career, I might have been skeptical of this, uh, especially as there was some competitiveness with some of the companies I worked for. Um, I think a company by the name of Seven Rooms does a great job of trying to enable hospitality. Um, you know, uh, what I just recently was in Las Vegas, everybody uses seven rooms in Las Vegas and 
And there were there were moments there where um, it looked like they knew things about my profile that could help them serve me better. Um, so kind of that collection of information and then dispersing it into into you know little uh, moments of hospitality. Um, I this this might come as a uh, as a surprise, but I think uh, DoorDash is a company that will reveal itself as wearing the white hat. Um, you know, in the long term. I think they care about restaurants, um, and I know it doesn't feel this way as there's uh, incredible competition that they have uh, going on. But I think once the dust settles on some of this stuff, uh, DoorDash will be a company that people think of as the the white hat version of, of you know third party delivery. Um, I'll also call out Olo. Um, Olo is a company whose uh, technology company has been around for a very long time, and they, um, you know, they get it. They just get it, and uh, and Noah's been at this for a very long time, uh, and there's a bunch of intelligent people there. When when I recently found out a little bit more about the full kind of um, uh, you know amount that they charge to restaurants, I was flabbergasted because I was like, "Holy cow, that's such an incredible value for the restaurants! Um, how could they charge so little?" And that alone tells me that they're not sitting there trying to maximize profitability. I'm sure they are for their shareholders and so forth, but. Their strategy to do that is to keep people on the platform as long as possible, not to gouge them in some you know singular moment. So, uh, shout out to shout out to those three guys. I have a meeting. To yeah, I do. Is that are we can we we can wrap? Um, do you have like a couple minutes? Can you can we ask you one question? Let's say no. And I think it's pretty tied into what you've been sharing here. Um, if and when you get Byte totally right, right? Like Byte has succeeded in one. What have you created? What have you built? What What's different about the world as a result? Yeah, I mean, when, when we look back and say how Byte has changed the world, it will um, have been a technology platform that allows restaurants and guests to have a better relationship, better digital relationship. Um, I want Byte to be the platform that that restaurants rely on to understand how to interact with guests digitally. They know how to do it in person. I, they, I, we're not going to teach them that. You know, most restaurants do that great, and that's part of their DNA. Um, that said, uh, I think they all need to learn more about how to. Um, how to interact with these digital, maybe digital only guests. And so um, if we look back, I hope I will be able to do that. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Today, we met with Brandon Barton, CEO of Byte, discussed a wide range of topics, including leveraging his sales background to become a CEO of an ascendant technology startup, the white hats who are leading the hospitality tech space into the future and what that future may look like and how it will impact in a positive way everyone's dining experience and so much more. Thank you again for listening. Keep your eye out for our next great interview to be released in the days and weeks ahead.